Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Savical is a new scheduling tool that removes the strange power dynamics of sharing your scheduling link. While most scheduling tools definitely make your life easier, they can still be inconvenient for the person you're sending your link to. So with the ability to create personalized links and allow recipients to overlay their calendar right on top of yours, that strange power dynamic can be a thing of the past. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Madhav Bonduri. Madhav leads marketing at Bonsai and previously worked for Hubstaff and Close. And he's also the host of the Remote Marketing Podcast. I wanted to bring him on because he's worked at three great SaaS companies who have all experienced amazing growth. So you'll hear about his philosophy around hiring and outsourcing, how they approach affiliate marketing for B2B SaaS, and what it takes to scale and grow into a large, profitable SaaS business. To start out, did you ever think you'd be doing marketing for a living? It's a funny question because, yeah, I mean, like... uh, Honestly, it was just kind of like I started working with a startup and just kind of like bumped into it finally. And I'm actually pretty lucky, you know, like I, the very few people who actually enjoy the work they do. And so pretty lucky, but did not expect to see myself in marketing. What do you expect to see yourself in? Man, I, I, I mean, I love music and I, I always thought I'd become like a musician at the end, but, and then I kind of did, you know, computer science engineering. And then I thought, you know, I'd be a programmer and then eventually just, one thing, something or the other kind of led me to marketing and I've been in it ever since. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the first kind of marketing gig or like, you know, how'd you break into being a marketer? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, so I basically, you know, I have uh, you know, kind of connected with some founders and, and basically, you know, we, we were just kind of starting to build out a product and so I basically joined a founding team and we were like three people building a CRM. And so at that time, there was kind of like, uh, and this was like 2013, 2014, where growth hacking was the big thing in the in the industry. So it was just kind of learning, you know, reading up all of these articles and everything. And I mean, that's where I kind of got introduced a little bit, really learned a ton from being part of all of these communities. You're like, I'm not sure if you remember, this community called inboundmarketing.org, inbound.org, sorry. Oh, yeah. um, and then growthhackers.com and all. And I, I used to be like a huge, very active community member. And so I think that's when learned through things and from there start kind of getting more deeper into marketing. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. One of the companies that really stood out to me was Hubstaff because they were an open startup powered by Bear Metrics, where I used to work when I, where I was the head of growth. I was curious if you could walk me through one, sort of how you landed that experience, and especially since they're very much into sort of the remote and obviously, you know, transparency as well. And then I have some other follow-up questions. Yep, yep, yep. So Hubstaff was basically, you know, right after this small gig that I was uh, telling you about, the small startup that we were in. I actually connected. So, you know, I started blogging somewhere about 2014. And then through that, I connected with Hubstaff CEO. And they were at that time just like, like a team of three or four and so they're like you know why don't you come in help us kind of build marketing and stuff like that and it was it was like a it, it was like a dream gig for me because i you know i went from being like a marketing specialist to actually like building something from scratch and so i kind of joined their team and, and that was really like the true fully remote experience for me and so we started kind of working together trying to and really like 
with HubSpot, it was like this. Like I joined, I mean, I think we, I joined like when you were making like a hundred k annually, and so really our goal at that time was just to kind of you know spend time kind of testing out like hundreds of different tactics, just kind of throwing different irons in the fire, seeing what sticks, and then figuring out which are kind of like dominant and adjacent channels, and then. Through that, kind of build like the foundation, you know, of our marketing. So it, it was pretty interesting, but yeah, like I just connected through one of my articles, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And then how stuff? I mean, it ended up scaling fairly large. I think today I just checked last night, and it was just around a million dollars in the MRR. So far above uh, what it was you know, a few years ago when, when you were with them. What what do you think were some of the keys to Hubstaff's growth? Yeah, I've been pretty proud of with, with how Hubstaff's kind of grown. So, I mean, I, like, I think without, like, obviously I can get into specific strategies and channels, but like on a really high level, it's really the one thing that we were very, very focused on was kind of like, we were almost like absolutely like laser focused on the whole AD20 rule, you know, that because, you know, we were kind of like a bootstrapped company. So we always had limited resources, never enough to kind of spend the initial year. So it was basically like finding whichever thing is sticking and then kind of, you know, that, that I think there's a, there's a quote that I actually read on Bear Metrics blog only, but it was something like constraints bring out creativity or something of those sorts. And I mm -hmm. love that because that's that's exactly what happened. You know, we we constrained, so it allowed us to kind of really find different ways to kind of do that. So I think that was one way we were able to kind of figure out certain channels that really worked for us. And I think the second thing here was that one thing that we were kind of lucky to kind of exploit early on was was you know being hundred percent transparent with everything we were doing. You know, transparency on you know on the revenue side, or be it, you know our marketing strategies or our product and everything. And the interesting thing is that that kind of content really just kind of like it, it basically explodes in the startup space right and maybe these startups aren't like our direct customers but it was just like through that kind of coverage really hub stuff got you know a lot of visibility and through that our branded searches grew and all of that so the transparency bit you know the initial time it didn't feel like that big but like really like over the years like the amount of people that have kind of reached out saying that oh my god love that transparency there is I think that was uh, number two. And I think the third thing, this is kind of like an initial more tactical thing that really worked well for us was, so we initially, like we built a ton of integrations and we kind of followed the Zapier model in a way that let's kind of build integrations with a bunch of different apps. And we know that time tracking and project management kind of go hand in hand. So if, you know, if we're listed on project management apps marketplace, you know, we can potentially convert those users. So that was incredible for like the initial stage of growth. But yeah, and then to be very honest, like there isn't one major one, like every year, every million milestone was very different from, you know, where is one million earlier. So it just constantly changed, you know, sometimes there was a maturing of the channel. Sometimes it required us to kind of get deep experts, kind of mature an already matured channel. And, you know, we had all of our, you know, uh, stages of like, you know, like I were like, I think Hub, like, you know, you've seen companies which have like these true hockey stick growth, a kind of like nice growth, but really with Hubstar is like grew and then flat for, you know, six months and then a little bit of growth and then flat for another four or five months. So it was, yeah, it was just a long, slow grind. Hmm. Yeah, as it is with a lot, but definitely some great foundations were laid because now they're, they're doing very well and continue to grow. And I know that no doubt some of that can be traced back to us to work with them and eventually then you you moved on to close and actually moved into 
product marketing. And product marketing is one of those sort of like mysterious type of roles where it's not super defined and maybe not like a an age old kind of tried and true, I guess like space or type of role that's very, very defined traditionally. Why move into product marketing? I mean, so, you know, as kind of like I personally, I kind of consider myself a generalist. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm able to kind of understand marketing from like a broad level and, you know, able to lead a marketing team, just kind of have that kind of functional knowledge of channels, right? And so Close was actually a pretty interesting opportunity just because, you know, every company has a different revenue stage. You know, Hubstuff was at a different revenue stage I came at. Close was at a completely different revenue stage. And that that excited me, you know, that challenge to kind of grow it from that particular stage to you know something a little higher and the kind of challenges it'll throw, you know, like I said earlier, every million, every five million just changes the way you kind of approach how you go about it. So I think that and the other thing was product marketing was just, it was so new. It was just like, it was interesting to see, like, let's just kind of dip my feet there and try to see like, what can we do there? So yeah, that was, that was primarily where I went. One of the one of the projects that really kind of piqued my interest that you worked on there was uh, the pricing, and including you know like rolling up the new pricing and introducing new tiers. Could you walk me like pricing again is one of those very difficult and kind of mysterious types of areas within a business. Could you walk me walk me through how you approached the pricing and what you actually ended up doing within Close? Yeah. So so basically, Close is you know you know it's a it's a CRM and we basically competed with you know with with the salesforce and hubspots of the industry and and you like pipe drive so you know when we kind of when we kind of saw our position in the market i think one of the things that we were kind of very known for was that we were kind of like this really premium crm with like a very high pricing so kind of a little bit of a high barrier for entry but we were also kind of like the industry's close kept secret and basically that 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 hurts you know as a business because if you're kind of like a close kept secret like you that's not where you want to be right and both of those are kind of interlinked to each other you know, if you've got a high price product there's fewer people you know trying for it and so you know when we kind of started seeing a path to grow there there were basically two ways to kind of go ahead with it you know one was that we you know bring in an additional higher tier of pricing and you know go for the enterprise route and you know go for the big fishes and everything or uh, but then obviously the pool of companies is smaller but the um, average account size is larger or we could kind of go you know a little you know uh, towards the bottom and kind of try to get a little more wide like cast a wider net with like a slightly lower pricing and so really that that was one reason where and you know we used to see a lot of customers like like close one of the good things with that is that you know because telly's personal brand is just so powerful because of that there's a lot of people that are aware about close and they know that it's a good CRM, but they never, you know, tried it because it's expensive. It, it may work for like a US based business, but for someone, let's say, you know, in, you know, in maybe India or kind of like, you know, some of the European countries it might be very, very expensive. And so because of those reasons, we kind of came up uh, with a lower tier plan and it was kind of through a lot of calculation on like, you know, because whenever you're kind of introducing a lower tier plan, you, you're also, you, you also have to kind of think of how it could affect your business you know like you know worst case scenario every customer downgrades to like the lowest tier of the plan right so how would that affect the business mm. or you know and how can we minimize that like how can we make the features enough to be appealing for like the new user but not enough for kind of like existing customers to downgrade so a lot of thought kind of came there but that was kind of like the high level thinking behind it yeah there, there's a lot that goes into it i know 
I've, I've dealt with a few sort of pricing evolutions and changes in my time as well. And there's just so many things that you don't really account for when you originally sit down and think, hey, we should introduce a new tier or, hey, we should, you know, sit down and maybe revamp our pricing. But did it? would you consider it like a success as far as, I don't know, metrics or just kind of even like with sentiment? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I mean, like sad for some companies, but it was actually a good learning because right when we got, when we had launched, right about six months back, Drip, which was which was another good email marketing platform, had actually changed their pricing like overnight and got like a shit ton of backlash yeah. for it. And then and then you know even like hearing of other brands, just kind of we knew that what they did was wrong, right? So that's why before the whole rollout happened, there was a lot of planning, like. You know, we start kind of talking to our biggest customers that, listen, this is going to happen. You know, let's kind of, if you want, you can grant for the prices for the year. And, you know, we we gave everyone, you know, a general notice about three months to kind of make that transition, you know, in case they wanted to move out or something. So because of all of those learnings, it actually was was, was pretty positive. Like, I don't think we got any, like any negative feedback as such. Hmm. Yeah, and and for context to the listeners, the the drip sort of fiasco was after getting acquired, they essentially doubled, sometimes even tripled the price for some customers, and it's kind of just like, hey, this is happening in two weeks, and yeah. it you know, good luck if you wanted to like move somewhere else because you're not gonna be able to do it in time essentially, so you have to kind of buckle up and and pay. Did you did you do any like testing before rolling out the new pricing, or how did you? sort of, you know, did you try to validate at all that the new pricing structure or tier was going to be a good move for the business? Yeah, yeah, of course. So we we tried out, you know, different, We I think we had like three pricing tests that happened and it was initially like rolled out to, you know, a, a couple of accounts to see, you know, their reaction to it. And we also kind of tested it on kind of like the landing page and everything. And it was, it was tested for three, four months before the final uh, pricing was rolled out. Also smart being able to do that and uh, make sure that it's actually going to be a smart move for the business. But today you're at Bonsai. How did you land that role? What was the appeal to move on and and, and uh, work with Bonsai today? Yeah. So the interesting thing for me, and I just want to be clear, right? Like in the last five six years, I mean, like basically since from like the small startup that I worked with, I've never really kind of applied for roles as such. It was basically like through. The whole blogging universe and everything i've basically mm. been connected with these years so you know i always have these conversations to just kind of understand and so i, I think bonsai was basically like i'd been speaking to them for about two years just understanding the business and everything and it was pretty interesting to see that they had kind of uh, been a free product and they monetized and they they'd seen some good growth and you know it was just it was a pretty great opportunity for me to kind of be in the space where like for example i'd been a marketing consultant for many many years and this was a tool to kind of help freelancers right so it was like very good match really like and we could really have an impact on like a lot of freelancers and everything and the last thing here was that they were actually at a stage which i'd basically done before but it was a very different challenge you know initially i'd you know focused on agencies this time as freelancers so it just it was a pretty interesting challenge. And so, yeah, like we started talking, started figuring out, started diving in more into the business numbers and eventually then made the jump. Hmm. Yeah. What's, talk me through the marketing strategy a little bit, if you can. Like just how how did you first approach the marketing for a bonsai? How has it changed over time? Like what does it look like today as well? 
Yeah, so with Bonsai, it was like when I, I basically came in when the previous head of marketing was leaving. So I inherited one team member and, you know, a bunch of these agencies. And basically, you know, we had a certain revenue target for 2020. And it was just like, I had to figure out like, where's the way forward? Because we basically had a marketing strategy where there were like a bunch of channels that were kind of showing some potential. We didn't know which one to kind of go forward with. And so with any kind of marketing strategy or anything, I basically, whenever I kind of approach marketing, I basically think of myself uh, as an investment manager, right? And I have this portfolio and I need to kind of, you know, increase or decrease investments, you know, based on the, you know, which one is a likelier, you know, low risk, you know, high performance investment and all of that, right? So in our case, SEO was was one channel that was kind of showing some results, right? And so it just made sense for me that let's kind of, amp up the investment there and let's try to see if that kind of brought in the same economics and really like with all of the marketing channels the one thing you should always remember is that there are certain channels that can absorb a lot of investment and continue to kind of give the same economics or better but then there are certain channels which there isn't a lot of room to kind of invest in because there's kind of like the scope of that channel right so with seo because i had the you know that insight in the past i knew that there is a lot of potential for investment there. So I basically kind of came in, started kind of building processes there, built out a strategy, which was, you know, already working, you know, and then we basically, we we built out our SEO team. We increased traffic, we got signups, all of that stuff. And then, you know, there, there are obviously multiple challenges in the way, you know, that the most common challenges with SEO are like, oh, you know, we're not ranking for our right terms or the quality of signups aren't great or, you know, we're not moving fast enough there or we've invested six months of resources and there are no results, you know. And all of these challenges were kind of throwing up, but then we did figure out. But the way I see my role here and, you know, any marketing leadership position is that I basically validate a channel to a point where, you know, we can, you know, we know that there is a lot of potential for scale and there is a lot of potential to kind of absorb the investment while keeping the units the same, unit economics the same. So in those cases, then I would go and start looking for somebody who can do this 10 times better than me, like a real specialist in that area. And so that's where, you know, at uh, at this stage, I was just like, you know, let's kind of find somebody who can actually do this better and kind of just bring in like these best practices in terms of SEO. And so I started hiring for a head of SEO and eventually hired him. And then, you know, we, he, he's been a great hire. He inherited the channel and then I, you know, slowly let that go. And so from there, the next job for me is that once that channel is kind of taken care of and it's growing and, you know, it's matured to a point, I basically look for the next dominant channel in our, you know, in our playbook, because it's like, there's a lot of different channels. You've got to analyze which one makes sense, which one has potential. So the next one in our case was there are a lot of different ones that, you know, we had, like there was lifecycle marketing, there's affiliates, there's, you know, lots of different things. And so, you know, when I did the research, I you know, kind of zeroed in on affiliates, you know, affiliates was something that was working pretty well for us. And, you know, without a lot of effort, it was kind of getting a decent percentage of our revenue. So I kind of start spending some time kind of building out that channel, trying to figure out what, you know, how to make that work. And the last couple of months, I kind of did that to a point where I knew that there is potential for it to absorb the investment. And so that's when I kind of started. I am right now actually hiring for kind of like a head of affiliate marketing for us. It's kind of like Mm. a good repeat case study of what happened with the SEO thing. And so the goal is to kind of get this person in they can kind of mature this channel and then I can kind of slowly let that go and then find the next thing and just kind of keep the 
overall marketing machine, you know, very smooth and cost uh, efficient and all kind of high performing. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I want to dive into a few different uh, paths there. But first, want to uh, sort of tie a bow on the affiliate marketing thought. Because my, my thought is with affiliates, it's it's my experience has been it's largely hit or miss. How do you know if affiliate marketing is good for your business? Like what are the keys to making it work? What are the, I don't know, maybe like big mistakes or pitfalls to avoid? Yeah. So I think three things on a high level and then I'll go deeper. Like I think one thing you should remember is that every industry is different, right? So, you know, like for example, like off the top of my head, you know, affiliate might not work pretty well for something like, I don't know, like a really high grade enterprise product, you know, it may like maybe the economics don't make sense just because there isn't enough, like people wouldn't buy like an enterprise CRM that costs $10,000 by just reading someone's online review, right? So I think if you're kind of like a product-led SaaS company with a low-touch product, you'd likely have a higher chance of an affiliate program working, right? But really the best way for you to kind of know that is look at your competitive landscape, see if your competitors or close competitors kind of have affiliate programs, how they're performing. Try to kind of talk to, and that's what I did, you know, I talked to a lot of these affiliate managers, try to understand you know, what backgrounds did they come from? How are they kind of tackling it? And one major thing that I realized was that there's a, re- like, there's actually a very tiny percentage of affiliate people who are actually working in software, B2B SaaS. Most of it is kind of like those one-time sale products, you know, you know, like maybe a mattress or kind of you know, all of those simple things, right? And for those, the affiliate strategy is completely different, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a completely different ballgame versus software, right? So, I think kind of talking to people, I kind of got some insights there and everything. And I think the third thing I also realized while I was kind of doing affiliate myself was that in affiliates, it's, you know, an 80-20 rule kind of applies there. The top 20% of affiliates bring in 80% of your revenue. But then there's kind of like the, you know, the 80% of affiliates that bring in 20% of the revenue. However, when you, so by all, like by all means, you should be kind of going for that top 20% because that's what makes sense. You should go for the ones that kind of bring in. The problem with that is that the top 20% of affiliates, you know, someone like Pat Flynn, who's probably lies on that, they're very, very hard to recruit. You can spend weeks and months and, you know, have like multiple touch points and a very expensive process and you'll be barely able to hire, you know, a couple uh, a couple of people, right? So it makes it very hard to kind of validate that. On the other hand, when you kind of have this long tail of affiliates, you know, a lot, you know, Pat Flynn was once in that 80%, you know, and they eventually grew to that top 20%, right? And you have a much likelier chance of kind of going for that wider net, getting someone, like really building out a relationship. And then once they kind of grow, like be with them as such, right? And so when I kind of, you know, like I keep talking about, does a channel, you know, have, like, can it absorb the investment that we have? In the, you know, like earlier what I did a year back was that I focused on that top 20%. And that was, a, that was a failure. Now, I will say this on the episode that you shouldn't kind of take this as like top 20% doesn't work. It works for different industries. You have to kind of find what works for you best. But in our case, top 20% were just so hard to recruit that it just it kind of made us dismiss the channel. So that's why we thought that the 80% is kind of makes sense. So that's when from there, I kind of started talking to people who have like a strategy that kind of targets these long tail of affiliates and one of the most fascinating companies that kind of came from that was ConvertKit. Really, really admire, like I, like they, when I spoke to the affiliate managers, uh, she actually told me that they bring in like 35% of their revenue from affiliates. That's crazy. That's kind of like, 
you know like th- that's what you call a dominant channel right there right and so mm-hmm. through her i learned and then you know i talked to other people and i mean that's how we've kind of figured out what our current affiliate strategy is well yeah one of the one of the things that came top of mind for me was the idea of recruiting and sort of building that that you know army of affiliates who can go out and and market for you do you have like a very active strategy to 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 recruiting affiliates especially in that sort of you know, 20%, but even in the 80%, or do you have a more passive strategy? Like, how do you think about actually launching and making use of an affiliate program? Yeah, so there, you know, an affiliate program with any marketing channel, every channel is at a different stage, you know? Like, you could have a channel that's at a very nascent stage, there's a channel that's kind of maturing, there's a channel that's already matured, and every channel requires different requirements. Like, on the initial stages, you're... So, like, on the affiliate side, if you're kind of on the initial stages, really the first step for you is to kind of see if your existing customers are even interested to kind of promote you and everything, right? So with a lot of companies and even with us, the way we started out was like two, three years back, we zeroed in on kind of like an affiliate program, sorry, an affiliate software, decide the terms of the affiliate program and just put a link to the affiliate program form on our website. And through that, you know, we got some organic signups and everything. Some affiliates kind of came in and we, just, we were just kind of giving payouts and everything. But I think it kind of grew to a point where we saw that, hmm, you know, there's a lot of potential. I mean, there's a lot of these affiliates that are out there. And when we look at their profiles, we know that there's at least 20 times more of these people that are out there, right? So through that, we decided that, you know, okay, let's figure out how can we do the recruitment, right? Now, recruitment can happen in two different ways. You know, one is through cold outreach where they don't have any idea what you are. And the other is warm outreach, which is basically they have some kind of touch point with your brand. Like they've heard of you before, right? Warm is like, it's the easiest to convert, right? So really that's what we kind of prioritize. We figured out that, hey, you know, if there's a, if there's a brand that's heard about us, let's try to kind of figure out how we can kind of convert those affiliates. Through that, we kind of built like this automated organic machine of kind of new affiliates signing up that are kind of like that new about our brand. But then obviously there's a cap to it. You know, there's, you're limited by the amount of people that actually know about your brand. So that's when cold outreach comes in because cold outreach is, is the real scale. You know, that's where you have like 20, 50 X, whatever, right? Now within that, there's a lot of different potential channels you can go for, right? Like when you kind of look at an average affiliate, the world started out with bloggers, right? Bloggers is where a lot of the affiliates are and everything, right? But, and and I'd, st- I'd still say they form largely the majority of the affiliates, but they're almost like an archaic form of affiliate marketing. Like it's slowly becoming archaic because uh, there's all of these new age micro-influencers that are coming in, right? So you need to kind of have a balance of both. You, know, you need to kind of get these bloggers, but um, also kind of get some micro influencers and all of these people with like really micro community. Like, for example, I don't know how micro community or maybe it's a massive community that you have at Swipe Files, but it's a community of marketers, you know, and it may be a thousand people, it may be 10,000, maybe 100,000, right? But they're all kind of aligned on one certain thing. So you're a much likelier affiliate to kind of recruit, I mean, that I'd be very interested in if I have a marketing software versus, you know, somebody like, you know, PC magazine, you know, like that's how we, that's how we basically, you know, look at our affiliate recruitment. It's amazing, amazing, amazing insight, especially someone who's been there and done that and, and making it work and now hiring out for it, which is awesome. Talk me through your philosophy around hiring and building out a team and, uh, you know, really passing the torch and delegating. Yeah. Wow. So on the hiring bit, I think the 
the one thing that i always look at is you know i want to work with people that are kind of like much 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 better than me you know people that we can learn from you know and you know people who have kind of like this ownership mindset and kind of don't need to kind of be handheld and you know kind of like can you know get things done on their own you know have a lot of energy can bring in new ideas and everything that's in general on a high level that we kind of look at right based on that the good thing you know being remote is that you have a huge talent pool available right so on an average like you know each of our marketing positions have gone like over 500 candidates sometimes it's even you know much much higher right that's the good bit of it but i think the uh, the bad bit about this is that it also has a lot of like you know f- like a uh, bad quality candidates like misfit candidates if i would say right so and and that takes up time right so you know as uh, the more and more i've kind of dived into recruiting it just has made sense that so th- there's two bits of it right like if you're an organization with kind of like a recruiter or an hr team and everything you know by all means kind of put your job on all sorts of job boards and kind of cast as wide a net and really filter through those and 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 try to find those people like that's the ideal thing to do like cast as wide a net you might find these really amazing fit people right but when you kind of like a slightly more smaller company you don't really have like a full time recruiter or kind of like an hr team or whatever in those cases if you're hiring on your own i think the one number one learning that i would say is that focus on direct sourcing first you know tr- and what i mean by direct sourcing is like people with you know who who already in their jobs doing the work you know for the companies that you really admire on those particular channels and you know get on calls to them try to see if they're if they're looking to kind of you know switch roles and everything and you'd be so surprised that you know <laughs> i mean like i think there's going to be a very i i'd almost say it's an unpopular opinion but i feel that candidates that are not actively searching out for a role are probably a little better fit than candidates that are actively searching out for a role you know it's not it's not true in all cases but that's i mean th- that's what we've seen sometimes you know that these are people like we're we're looking for people who are really not looking to switch they're happy with their jobs they're doing the work of their lives and we want you know we want to give them a great challenge and so with this direct sourcing kind of able to reach out to the cream of the crop and kind of get you know get like almost kind of pass to the round ones and the round twos and just get to kind of like these final stage candidates but it is incredibly time consuming so i think that's number one on the hiring bit the second thing that i've seen that works for me and i i actually remember i tried that with you as well so i remember i think it was about a year ago or maybe two years ago you hired for a content marketer position at bemetrics right and i basically one of the things that i tried to do is you know usually when you kind of hiring for the position right towards the end when you're kind of finalizing on one candidate you usually have like two or three that are actually really really good and you hate to kind of say bye to them but then just you can just you have the resource to hire only one right and i like to kind of talk to people who've hired for the roles and just ask them that hey you know what's the where's your second best third best fourth best hire and then kind of just jump the line if it's for that particular role you know and try to see if if they'd be interested so i mean these like there are obviously multiple tactics to it but these are kind of like the tactics that worked in ta- kind of getting high quality candidates in the pipeline yeah i love that i'm curious on your thoughts on not full time hires also using freelancers or agencies you had mentioned before that when you started at ponsa you sort of inherited this team of agencies and other sort of pieces to the marketing team that weren't you know on staff as a w2 employee right what what are your thoughts or opinions about hiring for roles not in a full-time capacity but more in a freelancer or, or even with an agency. Oh, we're we're like we're we're 
really big on that. So our philosophy is basically this, you know, that first of all, hire when it hurts, like absolutely. But I, I think that that applies for contractors as well as full-time hires. But we almost, for the, I mean, like, so with full-time hires, there's a big commitment that you're making. You know, you have to kind of put in lots of clauses. You've, you know, you, like, you can't, like, let go of them, like, immediately. You know, there's there's a lot of things and there are people, there are family, you know. So all of those things have to be taken into consideration. With agencies and freelancers, one of the things that I absolutely love is that you can scale up and down anytime you want. You know, you can, for example, we work with an ad agency, right? And with them, it's kind of like, we know that quarter one, it's kind of like the best, you know, like best time of the year in terms of kind of like conversion rates and everything. So we kind of really amp up spend in Q1. And we know that in Q4, like somewhere around December, things are kind of slowed down a bit. So we can really ramp down the spend, you know. And working with agencies and freelancers allows you to control that. Like another example of that is that when COVID hit, you know, that it's unfortunate for freelancers and agencies, but for businesses, it's not like you had to fire staff. You know, you can just kind of scale down the freelancer and agency commitments and then kind of restart them later on, right? And I think the third thing with freelancers and agencies is that they don't really require a lot of onboarding time. You know, they're basically specialists can get started from day one, right? And, and you know, they've done it with many clients. So wherever possible, we try to kind of go for freelancers and agencies. That's why our marketing team's actually pretty small. Like we're just, you know, we're three full-time hires in the marketing right now. We're hiring for a fourth. We're pretty small, but we work with a lot of agencies and freelancers and that allows us to kind of build capacity to do a lot of things. So I think that's there. On the flip side, however, the one thing that I've seen with freelancers and agencies that doesn't work well sometimes is that I think the amount of insight and commitment that you get from somebody in-house and kind of them bringing in like this different level of ownership, you sometimes may not be able to get in a freelancer. You know, like somebody like, if let's say you get somebody like, I don't know, the difference is like, assume like a freelance writer versus an in-house writer. Huge difference. Like, you know, an in-house writer can kind of bring in ideas, can contribute to the strategy, all of that. And they have inside of the product, the business, all of that. But a freelance writer doesn't, right? So that's the only potential downside. But I think for, like, our strategy always remains this, that variable over fixed, go for that. But if there's a recurring requirement and we really need commitment from this person, we're going to hire them full-time. Hmm. I can imagine with, even with four full-time marketing hires and, you know, a slew of freelancers and agencies that you work with, communication and project management is going to be one of those things that really gets tough to be able to you know, truly collaborate where you're not stepping on people's toes and you're on top of things and deadlines are being met. How, how do you manage that? Because that's always been one of the, the toughest things for me personally, not being a very like operational sort of detail oriented person. I'm more like, you know, set the, set the vision strategy work, you know, I want to just kind of go out or just do my own thing. What's, what's your process or philosophy like for that? Yeah. So our marketing team is basically structured in a way that everyone owns one specific channel and they're hundred percent responsible for that. And they're deep specialists in that area, right? So if there's anything related with SEO, any freelancer kind of or agency that's within that is 100% managed by them, right? So because eventually they're the ones that are kind of responsible for the OKRs. So let's say, for example, if you're working with a link building agency, then it's the head of SEO's responsibility on kind of uh, handling that, right? I, I mean, and I think with agencies and freelancers, it's always a you know a hit and trial before you actually find a great agency or freelancer to work with, you know? For example... <laughs> to be honest, I don't think we've still figured out the link building agency, but like 
I, I think we've worked with like some 10, 12 agencies. None of them um, are like great. And just, and so because of that, there are certain things that you're not able to kind of figure out. But sometimes if you find the right person, we stick with them for many, many years. And another thing that I've realized, you know, you know, like you said about, free, you know, freelancing agencies sometimes being a hit and miss there. I think you get what you pay for. So if you pay, if you look for a really high quality freelancer agency, I, and that's what we basically look at. Like, you know, we know that working with a low quality freelancer, paying them a low fee, so it's just going to be, it's just going to cost us big time later on. And so we'd rather just, you know, find somebody that's great, pay them a good price, get really good quality work and just kind of focus on that on a high level, right? So like the full-time hires, we're also kind of looking for freelancers that kind of are very good at asynchronous communication, are very good at over-documenting things and are kind of like, you know, very prompt with their work and stuff. So that's that's always something we're working And So if we find the right agency, we stick with them. If we don't, we just keep changing until we find the the right one. And we're also like, we don't kind of like if someone isn't working out in like the six to eight weeks, we're pretty like we just say that, you know, listen, here's some direct honest feedback. This is not working. If you don't fix this, we're gonna kind of end the contract. And that's again, that's that's the great thing with freelancers and agencies, right? Like you can have that, and if they don't, you can find the next person, right? So yeah, I mean that that on a high level, that's how it works. And then operationally with project management, it's it's really just every agency has their own particular you know, output metrics, you know, so for link building, it's fairly simple, you know, get links for a content agency. It's, you know, it's, it's a different KPI for a, you know, an affiliate recruitment agency. It's, you know, the number of affiliates recruited and activated. So it, it's different for everything, but we're basically monitoring the output on a high level. If they're not able to reach that then we find somebody else. Hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about the remote marketing sort of project, right? You have remotemarketing.org, which is the blog. You also have the remote marketing podcast, which I was happy to be a guest on and uh, super stoked and, and thankful for. But where, where did that come from? I mean, re remote marketing is like very like niche, you know, so how would you think about starting this up and, and what's the mission of it? Yeah, so the way it started out was so I've been I've been working remotely for more than eight years now, fully remote, and so you know, and I've been in marketing, right? So I, you know, as I started blogging and everything, I was writing a little bit about marketing strategy, and I was writing a little bit about remote and stuff, and then you know, as I kind of started seeing people kind of come to me with questions about, hey, you know, what's the tool that you recommend, or what's this, or you know, what's your strategy for this, all of that, right? You know, and and people start coming in like you know, how do you hire, you know, we're a, you know, co-located marketing team. How do we go remote? All of these, when I started kind of getting these questions, the one thing that kind of hit me at that time was, you know, remote is something that works very well for certain industries and doesn't work very well for certain industries, right? A simple example is that my mom, she actually, you know, she's in the education sector. She's a, she's a teacher's teacher. And so she, you know, used to commute for a long time. And she did that for 25 years just because there's no remote education tools that are available at that time, right? And she was a mom and she had to raise us and all of that. And that was, you know, like it was it was difficult for her, right? Now with the whole tech kind of catching up, maybe education still hasn't caught up to the level where, you know, d design and development teams are at, but marketing has. And there's a ton of parents or, you know, people who, could just benefit so much from not commuting that I generally feel that 
most marketing teams can go 100% remote right so why not make that a mission like let's do that can have a big impact it's 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 an area where i have a lot of experience in so that's how it started you know i started kind of writing content about you know how to kind of make that switch from you know co-located to remote and doing that but then i think over time what i also kind of realized was that there's a lot of these amazing these amazing remote marketers that are out there that are actually you know they're not great at showcasing their work but they're actually really really good like they have an amazing amount of knowledge to share right so i started finding these people and then started kind of talking to them started doing these interviews for example one was like with todoist head of marketing you know she's not like i hadn't heard a lot about how she operates her team so i thought let's kind of talk with her or i you know talk to fresh books SEO lead to understand how they kind of you know what their SEO processes were and everything and through that it just kind of became clear that this was the direction that I wanted to spend time in so for like the last 5 years I started kind of focusing on this you know kind of interviewing remote marketers sharing what is kind of in my playbook and almost kind of on a really high level building like this universal playbook that can be you know ever long like a universal swipe file for marketing teams to go from co-located to remote that's really the whole goal of this project be it through a podcast or a video or through a course or whatever but really that's the overarching goal of all of this i love it i love it man and you really you're sort of riding the wave riding your you're you're in the right space now that it's trendy and well a lot of people are forced to as well right so it's a it's a great time to be in, in that business quote unquote i'm curious for my own say my own curiosity because i think you probably know it marketing a podcast is really tough promoting growing listenership getting downloads what have you learned about marketing through promoting and marketing the remote marketing show oh man that's meta so all right so i mean i'm just trying to understand the question here it's just too meta for me you're trying to understand how to kind of market my marketing podcast through my podcast No yeah just i mean what what have you learned about trying to grow listenership with the podcast essentially like what what yeah. does it mean to you what's your experience been like growing the podcast Yeah so the part so to be 100% honest here the podcast the way it started was that you know blogging takes a lot of time you know an article takes me about 2 weeks to complete and with with an audio file it's like an hours commitment and i push it out right and there's kind of like this i just felt that there's just a lot to share so i started the podcast is kind of like a just a conversation with me which probably pissed a lot of people but so it was it was me kind of sharing you know all of the things that i was learning and i started out with that and i did a little bit of promotion here and there and stuff and it got a little bit of uh, traction through the network and everything but then you know like i said i started interviewing these these people you know the and i saw that i think you're doing it in some form as well which i really really admire but you know there's there's a lot of marketers that are out there that are actually great at kind of showcasing their work and that for those reasons they're the people who get invited to conferences and to podcasts and have this amazing personal brand but there's a i don't know 10 times larger audience of marketers that are better than those people but are just they're just shy about sharing their work right and so these are the people that I absolutely want to talk to i want to talk to the video producer on webflow to ask about what his processes or i want mm. to talk to uh, all of these right so so i started kind of getting these people on the show and one thing i realized was that when you kind of get a you know guest on the podcast and they share it with their audience and that was a great way to kind of you know get more coverage on the on the podcast right and it, it was pretty incredible you know like you can't expect every episode to go viral or something but then there'd be like one 
episode out of the 15 episodes that would get like 20 times more listens than your average listens, right? And the interesting thing with podcasts is that once you get that one high, it's not like it just goes down. It basically is that out of that, I don't know, 2,000 people that heard your podcast, about 500 of those would continue to listen to your podcast and once they kind of subscribe to it, right? And that's the thing that you're looking at. It's almost like a step-by-step kind of like a ladder, you know? You keep producing your podcast and that'd be like this one big podcast and then you'd kind of hit like this new normal and then that'd be kind of like straight and then you kind of get that, right? So guests are a great way to get a lot of listeners outside of it, right? And I think the third thing that I've learned about podcasts is that I don't think podcast is a great way to grow your audience. It's actually a great way to kind of build a relationship with your audience. You know, mm. it's it's a great way for you to kind of chat with them on like a really personal level and everything. But you can't scale it like how you scale like an email list, right? And that's a fact that you have to just live with, you know, just get those email list people and kind of use this as a way to kind of stay in touch. But that's about it, you know, and just let the podcast be just about sharing your knowledge and it will pick up. I don't think you can like it's I think it is unreasonable to expect it goes to the level of, you know, Joe Rogan or whatever. Like, (laughs) but but yeah, I mean, like as long as you have people who are engaging and you have like a class of 2000 people listening to your episode every day, you're still kind of achieving your objective of one to many, which is which is really what matters when you're kind of pursuing a mission. Yeah, I like that. I think it's really important to not try to make something more than it ever would be or that it that it even should be right just let it be what it is let it serve the purpose that it serves and not try to you know blow this thing up into something that that it's never going to be one of the other thoughts that that really intrigued me and in, in a topic that you brought up was around hiring a coach working with a coach effectively you know how how you pay your coach difference between a coach and a mentor do you do you use a coach personally Yes. Yeah. So I have three coaches. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Talk me through that. Yeah. So like, you know, I've, I was always a little hesitant on kind of like getting coaches or mentors, but I think it was, it was one of the best decisions I've ever taken. And it basically started out with this, right? Like, so in the last eight years, I've always kind of reported to kind of like the CEO. And CEOs are incredibly busy people. They don't, I mean, hmm. every individual has their different characteristics, but, you know, they, they're they maybe like product people. They're not like marketing superheroes. And probably there are some CEOs that are kind of like come from a marketing background, but then a lot of them aren't, right? So if there's a complex marketing problem, they can help you out, you know, on like a certain level. But I think beyond that, it's beyond their capabilities, right? And that's what you miss, you know, when you're kind of like a marketing lead at a company, you know, like if you're at, you know, at another company where there's another head of marketing, there's somebody really senior who you can be talking to and discussing your problems with. And you don't have that when you're kind of like even just a marketer, you know, or a team of one, you know, you don't have anybody going to talk about that. Right. So through that, I was, I was, I was, I was always very interested to kind of get like a mentor slash coach, anyone that, you know, I can speak to. The problem with another problem that I see with coaches and mentors, uh, a lot of people make is that they hire someone way too senior. I mean, they work with a coach that's too senior and then it becomes completely irrelevant, right? So for example, if you're kind of like a marketer at like a SaaS company that makes $2 million annually and you work with like head of marketing at Asana, that just mm. wouldn't work. I mean, right. he is working at operating at a, completely different level as you are right and he's probably gone through your phase many many years ago so wouldn't remember right the right fit for a coach or a mentor is somebody who's probably two to five years 
um, ahead of you, you know, and has gone through that same journey. And so through that, you know, I, I had a couple of people in mind, but the next big issue was that, how do you like, you know, for example, like our, our world in SaaS is so small. There's, there's really very few people who've, let's say, grown a SaaS company from 10 million to 100 million. Like I can like count the number of people who've done that figuratively, right? So for those reasons, you might not be, you might not know that person. So how do you convince them to be your mentor, right? Like, and that's, that's a big question a lot of people ask, right? And I think the one thing that I've learned is that the simplest way to kind of do that is just pay them. You know, it's just keep the relationship really official and, and make it worth their time. You know, they're busy people, they're all of that. The interesting thing is that I get a lot of people kind of reaching out to me also for like, hey, you know, could you mentor me? I'm kind of early in my journey in marketing and stuff. And, you know, the thing is that there's just so many people that kind of reach out about this that you don't know which, I mean, I want to help everybody, but I've, I'm so limited with my own time. So which ones do I, you know, pick and choose, right? And it wouldn't make sense to kind of pick and choose based on that. So what I've seen is that if someone kind of came and say that we'd be happy to pay for your time, then I'd be like, okay, this person's serious. Let's work with them. Let's do that, right? Through that philosophy, I kind of worked with my mentors as well. I said, you know, listen, you've done this. I would really appreciate some help. And, you know, let's kind of like, I'd be happy to pay like a nominal fee. The interesting thing is when you give the offer to pay, a lot of mentors aren't going to put you on like a very heavy bill. They're just going to give you like a nominal fee just to make this worth their time. But a lot of these mentors actually enjoy the whole coaching bit. And so that's what happened with me. Like I started working with somebody and it is one of the best decisions I took. So through that learning, I hired coaches on a lot of different other areas as well, right? So I have a coach that's for, you know, marketing. Then I have a coach for, you know, dealing with, you know, stress at a high, you know, high pressure job, you know, where you need a lot of energy all the time. And then I hired like a personal trainer who can help me kind of, you know, like understand how to kind of, you know, build muscles and, you know, like a little bit with fitness and everything, right? And with all of these coaches, I have a paid relationship. And a lot with all of these coaches, like we have progress, they're committed to, you know, the work with me, I'm committed to work with them. And it's, it's worked out great. It, it's, it's almost like you can read as many books as you can. There is no comparison to working with a coach that's ahead, like just five years from you. Yeah, I love that. I've I've worked with uh, a few people. I've also been a coach to to many people, and you know, coaching, mentoring, a relationship with a few founders, marketers, people, especially early stage B two B SaaS, which is sort of the the niche that I've carved carved out for myself. And uh, it, it is interesting to look at it and just think like uh, just the level of detail and kind of specificity, and you can really tailor your advice to a particular person. Whereas I think you know, really where the value comes in is you can read a book, you can take a course, but then you have to figure out how do I apply this to me? And when you work with a coach, then they say, hey, here's how to apply that for you. And here's what I would do if I were you, right? And so you get sort of like the, the direct advice, the feedback, and also that real-time kind of communication. I think with the with the coaching, right? Like 100% agree with you. And I think with like, I think that's where the whole sharing your work thing is, is really valuable, right? Like by all means, anything that you're learning, like, you know, there, there's this, it's actually true, you know, that there's this course called Reforge and they, you know, they, they came up with this new vision where they say that, you know, a lot of, you know, the core information, you know, about how to grow a company is kind of in the minds of very, very few people, right? And that's not right, you know, it's like the, the only way for you to know is either work, do the work yourself or 
hire this person right so i think to mentor people or to coach if you want to do that on large scale just share your work kind of do that and you know blog about it podcast about it, whatever but just put that out there but if someone wants to kind of work one on one with you and everything and require a more customized advice i think that's where you can like i think that way you're not kind of you know you don't sit with the guilt trip that oh my god you know i'm denying all of these people all of these opportunities so like in my case the, the way it is like if someone comes into me says that hey you know how do i find this amazing person for my team i'll just send a link to my hiring guide or my hiring swipe file on my blog and i'll just share it with them and they'll be like oh you know thanks a lot and you know that it, it helps them right and that way you're still helping you're doing that one to many communication here and you're still helping but then with the if they need more customized thing then you can kind of make it a more formal relationship yeah yeah that that's spot on there i think well i don't know if it's been your experience as well but when i when i was a coach and still am a coach for a few a few companies one of the things that they always wonder about is coming up with marketing ideas and just sort of spitting out new things, come up with a, with innovative sort of new, fresh things consistently. Cause you can maybe have like a, you know, a shower thought or an epiphany here and there, you know, Eureka moment, capture lighting in a bottle, but how do you do that time and again, over and over and over again? So I guess on like a junior level, the way you do it is read you know, be part of communities, listen to podcasts, you know, hear people out. Another really good way to kind of understand marketing strategies is reading job descriptions, you know, understand what people are hiring for. And that would really make you uncover that, oh, you know, there's this one thing like, what the hell is account-based marketing? Let me read about it a little bit more, you know, kind of like that. On a junior level, that's how you would do that. But I think as you kind of start kind of going up the ladder and trying to understand things from a high level, the only and only way to kind of uncover ideas is to get people on the phone and talk to people. And I don't mean talk to CMOs. I mean, talk to your customers, to talk to your affiliates, talk to people who don't want to be your customers, talk to people, you know, like talk to anybody and just try to understand their perspective. And I think that's where you kind of start uncovering insights. And I think that's where, like, and this is something I've made a mistake in the past. Like I did not talk to customers. And I think the more and more I speak, it's been interesting to see that if I, let's say, get on 20 calls with customers, there will be like one or two nuggets that will keep getting repeated again and again. And that's like a major breakthrough. And the reason why I say that, that it's important on a high level is because, you know, on the on the junior level, when you're kind of getting ideas from all of these places, the problem with those ideas is that they've already been tried and tested. And that kind of reached their maturity phase. And you're basically coming in late on those channels, right? But when you're kind of talking to these people, and let's say on a conversation, someone says, oh, you know, I do you know, I don't know, swipe files, you know, stories on TikTok, you know, and I have like 1.5 million followers. You're like, oh, you know, I mean, <laughs> there is. A so, I mean, I think that's where, that's where you kind of uncover these opportunities before they become popular and then kind of use them to your, to your advantage. So, yeah, I mean, like really just, just get on the phone with people as much as you can and you'll, you'll, you'll uncover it consistently. I love that. Yeah. I, I've also seen this tension of, what I'd call like being very data-driven, a data-driven marketer where you're looking at the numbers and the analytics, being able to come up with ideas or to make tweaks or optimizations between also a very maybe intuitive approach where you're just sort of, you're talking to people or you're looking at qualitative data, you're, I don't know, you're having ideas yourself or, you know, you, you get bits and pieces maybe over social media or other blog posts of what people are, are working on. How do you, how do you balance that? Like, okay, this is a good idea on paper, versus this is a good idea sort of objectively based on what the data is telling us 
so i think there are two things here one thing you need to remember is that i think one thing you need to be is just be very inquisitive be it on calls or be it looking at analytics data like for example if you're looking into your analytics data and you see that oh you know you're getting a lot of signups from this particular country or you're getting a lot of usage on a particular feature try to kind of you know like that's a data point that you have now you know find that subset of people get on calls to them try to understand why that's the case right and through that you'll be able to understand right but this requires a level of inquisitiveness not just on the calls and understanding but like also looking at the data and finding there if there's a potential option you just look at it right i think that's number one and the the other thing that i was just kind of oh my god i've completely lost that train of thought let me sorry what, what are we talking about no worries yeah just like where's uh data driven versus intuitive do you use you know how do you sort of right 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 yeah so the second bit that, that i just remember is that what you're talking about objectively is the way i see it with any marketing idea right you should have an r&d budget for it right you should be able to test it out and don't think about profitability don't think about oh you know does it make unit economics sense or anything the goal is to buy the data you know understand mm-hmm. what you know if it works so for example if you see people kind of saying oh you know you know i i read a lot, I, i see a lot of these marketing tutorials on youtube and you're like hmm maybe i could create a tutorial put in like a i don't know 5 10k budget create those tutorials get that data you know let it be whatever it can be an expensive experiment but get that data and i think and like try to kind of get that as soon as possible and then kind of you know figure out if it makes sense or anything like for a simple example for us is that we wanted to kind of test out youtube ads right and and we didn't know if that you know if that worked or not what were the economics of it all of that and so what we did was that we 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 set up an r&d budget we set up these different different tactics we could try we put in the money and then we said let's spend you know some amount for the next one month and let's try to get that data like what does the landscape even look like right and in four weeks we had some idea that this probably works this doesn't and should we dismiss this idea or not but through that you're able to kind of buy the data early because the thing is that you can wait a long time and stuff like that but really if you you know if if you're able to do these r&d experiments and get that data up front you you'll be at a much much advanced stage in kind of getting things done by the data i love that speaking of ideas as well like what's something on the horizon maybe like emerging technology or kind of cutting edge tactic that you're experimenting with or that you've just been seeing kind of out in the wild that you has you excited one thing that i've been seeing is there's a lot of these i don't know how to describe those there are, there are these content science tools you know people who are kind of using ai to kind of understand you know how people search what their you know like what makes a great piece of content if you compare that with the top 30 articles and and i'm i mean i'm still not 100% sure if it's if it actually works in a good way or not so that's something i've i've just been trying to understand like how they get that data does it even work and stuff so there's a lot of these tools you know market muse surfer seo and then there's this phrase and all of these other tools i'm just kind of looking into it to see if if this is legit i don't have an answer for that but that's that's an exciting area yeah no that, that that's great starting to wrap up here one of the the final segments left to, to, to ask about is to get a peek into your swipe file as it were and to get into some marketing examples or campaigns or things that you think are worthy of saving do you have a few that are top of mind that you could walk me through Yeah, there's a couple, right? So, let me kind of think of it. I think one company that I really, really admire is Canva. Like the way they've kind of and this from kind of like an SEO standpoint, like if you kind of look at their SEO strategy, 
it is just so wild and so you know <laughs> wild it's probably not the right word but like it's it's crazy the amount of growth that they've seen and it's 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 a primary uh source of their revenue and then when we kind of when i've kind of you know like i said you know i try to understand how they kind of look at their strategy so i looked at their job description i realized that the amount of like they have a massive outreach team you know like i'm talking like 30 50 people you know just doing outreach day in day out almost like sales executives right, right. and that really interests me you know the way they've kind of grown to like whatever 25 50 million searches a month and something and they have like a very interesting paid structure like the way you know like they have these transactional you know pages that are kind of like really bottom of the funnel almost something like you know visiting card maker and then there'd be kind of like a page and everything and someone who's searching for visiting card maker will buy you know a product like that you know they're, they're looking for that so that's a really really interesting strategy that I really admire canvas one then the then convert kit was one that i told you about you know really admire the way they've kind of scaled their affiliate program like i mean i've seen a lot of people move from different email marketing tools to convert kit as an affiliate i've seen uh, more and more blogs come in and it's amazing how they've kind of been able to grow their affiliate program with with such a small team right so I've been trying to kind of understand like how they do that. And I've figured out like, for example, one interesting thing they do is they actually have these monthly webinars with their affiliates where they're almost like marketing teachers to their affiliates. You know, they're they're teaching them how to be good marketers, right. which is pretty interesting. You know, if you teach them that, and I think that, and I think that seems to be one key strategy that works for them one key tactic that works for them on the affiliate side convert kit is the second one i think the third is again i really admire zapier's seo as well just because zapier's seo is actually different from canva because the thing is zapier actually started out with with the strategy where they were so, like there's a lot of tools where people like people are kind of integrations you know salesforce hubspot integration right and there might not be an integration that already exists but but you know they 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 built into it right and through that they grew to a certain level and from there they've kind of followed this this strategy of like the top best tools and they have like a top best tools of i mean you name anything and you have something like that there right and that's a pretty interesting strategy i feel like you know because it's so when you kind of look at the top best tools and everything, these are again very bottom of the funnel users. These are people who are already solution aware. Now they're just looking for products to kind of buy, right? And it's a really smart strategy on their side. And through that, I mean, I was just seeing about it, like Zapier has grown like crazy. I think they're like at something like 300 million ARR or something like that. Like it's 300 or 200 or something like that. I read that, but it's it's insane how they've just done that with with an SEO strategy like that. So. Those are the three companies that I'm definitely kind of watching out. Yeah, those are amazing. I think that the last report number I saw for Zapier was 140 million ARR. Because I've been following the the MakerPad acquisition closely, and uh, congrats to Ben. But uh, those are those are great examples. I love always admired Camo's SEO, convert its affiliate program as well. Top of mind for me, probably like one of the top tier ones uh, in Zapier as well with the programmatic stuff. It's just just fantastic. Final question for you: When I say everything is marketing. What does that mean to you? What what comes to mind? To me, I think it the only thing that I mean is that in everyday life, you're we're almost selling everything. You know, we're selling the restaurant. You know that the 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 amazing restaurant that you went to that you want to go with your wife with, or you know you're selling the software to your visitors, or you're selling your position, your role to you know a potential you know company that you'd work with, right? And so that's where 
I mean, that's how I, I think about everything's marketing. I love it. Well, Matt, I super appreciate you coming on, sharing everything. It's been great getting to know your history, background, so many great thoughts. I'm going to have a lot of the mentions and, and links in the show notes as well, but I appreciate you coming on. All right. Thanks a lot, Cody. Great seeing you here, man. I'm just so used to the previous podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Thanks again, as always, to Meta for coming on the show. Make sure to check out the Remote Marketing Podcast, another marketing podcast I can recommend. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. One, think of yourself as an investor. Where can you get the best bang for your buck? And where are you going to allocate budget to? Two, buy the data. When you're first starting out on a paid acquisition channel, you need to give it time to figure out if it's going to work and how it's going to work. So go into it knowing that you're going to pay for the data and that'll tell you to continue or iterate or to pivot. And three, hire a coach. Coaches are an amazing way to get feedback and make quick progress. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.